Broadcasting from behind the Second Amendment Iron Curtain in the shadows of the New York City skyline, this is Gun For Hire Radio, the voice of one million New Jersey gun owners, with your hosts, Sandy Berardi and Master Firearms Trainer, Anthony Calandra. Live from the land that freedom forgot, the most listened to Second Amendment broadcast in the nation. Welcome to it. Oh, I'm broadcasting from Brussels right now. And uh, yesterday I was in Waterloo, which that's the, if you watch the intro to this week's show, is this case New Jersey's Waterloo, where they went too far and our case is going to get springboarded to the Supreme Court and further help all of the other states that are under the boot of our governments and administrations trying to take our natural rights away to protect ourselves. Well, last week, Judge Bum dropped a 230-page ruling while I was on a tour and I had to read it from an iPhone. A lot of until I got back to my hotel because I couldn't wait. Yeah. And by the way, Sandy, I've said for three or four weeks in a row now that the ruling was going to drop while I was away, right? That's true. Yeah, <laughs> and it did. dropped while I was away, yeah, right. of course. But I managed to uh, track down Dan Schmutter. No, he is not eating French fries and Belgian waffles in Brussels. He is in New Jersey in an undisclosed location right now preparing for the rest of this uh, case as it proceeds. But we wanted him on the show to cover uh, some major issues, discrepancies, uh, and make sure all of you are safe and careful out there and know what your rights are under Judge uh, Chief Judge Bum's decision. So without further ado, from Hartman Winnicky, two-way lawyer extraordinaire, ANJRPC counsel, NRA consultant, whatever we want to call them one of our huge fighters in the state of new jersey dan schmutter take it away are you eating a lot of uh, sprouts in brussels Ooh, zero sprouts in brussels that's a, a shot but the 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 the, the, uh, the french fries are cooked in beef fat or or are lard so they're delicious by the way excellent because yes I, I too would fly all the way to europe to get french fries <laughs> Yes, <laughs> me too. I was at Waterloo yesterday, so, you know, me being a his- historian, a history buff, I loved it there. So, Dan, uh, how do you feel about uh, this 230-page uh, uh, ruling? It's it's great. I mean, it's just great. I, it, it's... it's um... It, it's such a... It's such a win. It's not even funny. Um... 230 pages is a lot, by the way. You don't see that. <laughs> you just don't. Um... And, you know, it, it is a testament to the court's thoroughness. Um, you know, it, the a lot of times when you see decisions that go the wrong way, you, you will often see courts giving short shrift to the constitutional issues the and the record. Um, and they kind of just, they often just kind of mail it in. Um, and it's aggravating because it's not it's not just that that the courts get it wrong; it's that they're not really putting in the effort. And while we we don't agree with everything the judge ruled, um, she did really she did a really great job of rolling up her sleeves and digging into both the record in front of her and the legal issues. 
and that's 230 pages worth and you know it's really mm. gratifying when you're in front of a court that's really focused and really doing the work it's you know that's as a lawyer it's very gratifying to see that because as lawyers you know we bust our asses to try to do our best job making a record in front of the court putting the stuff in front of the court and when you see the court engage the record that way and take this really seriously it's just really gratifying to to see that happen uh, because it doesn't always happen that way so we're, we're very pleased with with uh, with the ruling it's um, it's we've we we advanced the the case we advanced the relief that we got we advanced the rights of New Jerseyans under the Second Amendment so it's just very exciting can you explain to everybody that this is just the PI phase of the whole trial ahead? Because a lot of people think like, well, that's it, it's over, and now we're off to the Third Circuit and then the Supreme Court, hopefully. Ex- just explain for the non-lawyers out there what this means right now. Her ruling came out 230 pages. What would the next, uh, roughly, what are the next steps? Yeah, that, that, that's important because for, for non-lawyers, it's not always obvious how, what's actually happening. Um, and this kind of case, there's a lot of pieces and moving parts and a lot of steps. So um, the, the first <clears throat> in the first phase of the case, we sought a temporary restraining order, uh, also known as a TRO. We talked about this, but you know I'll remind people because not everybody either remembers it, not everybody heard it, you know, in the past. A TRO is, in a sense, kind of a hair-on-fire emergency type of situation. You go to the court and you say, Judge, this is a dire emergency. We need relief now because otherwise there will be irreparable harm and we need you to, we need you to give us relief now. Um, and, you know, we got some really good relief uh, from the court uh, at the TRO phase. Um, and the TRO kind of tides you over until a fuller record can be made. More briefing more testimony perhaps you know in our case it was written testimony but you can have you know in court live testimony before the court um and so the idea is we don't have time to make a full 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 record or a fuller i shouldn't say full 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 i should say fuller we don't have time to make a fuller record so we're gonna do the best we can on an emergency basis and and the judge is gonna make a decision and see if um injunctive relief temporary injunctive relief is warranted and that's what happened here and we got some good temporary relief now the question is, okay, lawsuits take time. And so um, we've asked for a preliminary injunction, which takes us to the end of the case. So the idea is, look, lawsuits take time while we're litigating what our rights are. We were, again, experiencing irreparable harm. That is harm and injury that can't readily be compensated by money damages because many lawsuits in fact most lawsuits are about money and at the end of the day if the plaintiff is right and the plaintiff has in fact been injured the defendant will typically owe the plaintiff money of some sort um, in damages but some injuries can't readily be compensated by money either because there's no way to there's no way to 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 compensate um, in money or because it's too difficult to calculate the damages in money and therefore the court issues a a ruling that says you're going to stop doing this or you're going to start doing this Um, and that's an injunction and so when you're litigating a case like this and you're experiencing 
what's called irreparable harm the entire time you're litigating. You know, years can pass and you're being injured as as you as the case is going forward. Maybe you're taking depositions. Maybe you're reviewing documents. Maybe you're researching the law. That entire time it takes you to get to trial or to get to a resolution of the case, you're being injured the whole time. And so you go to the court and you say, Judge, we're being injured as we're as we're litigating this. We need relief now. We need some preliminary relief, at least for now, until the court can decide the case on its merits in full at the end. And that's what a preliminary injunction is. And there's a standard that you have to satisfy. You have to show the court, among other things, that you are experiencing irreparable injury. And you have to show the court that you're likely to succeed on the merits of the case when the case is set down for final disposition. So the court has to recognize number one, there's this injury going on that has that that is a, 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 you know that can't be resolved by damages, and you're probably going to win, or you or there's a likelihood that you're going to win. Okay, and those are the two. There, there are actually two other prongs as well, but those are the main ones, um, the key ones that you have to have. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, the court is going to say no. That's okay. We'll wait till later. So that's where we are now. So there's there's much more to the case. This is the preliminary injunction, and don't forget we're still Strictly speaking, at the beginning of the case, it seems like we've been going for quite a while, and we have. Um, you know, the case started in, in December, um, and it's now May, so we've been litigating this for a while now. But it's technically the beginning of the case, um, and so there's a couple of different directions the case now can proceed. Uh, number one, the state has already filed, uh, has already commenced an appeal. Um, they filed their notice of appeal, so they're going to appeal. They are, I shouldn't say going to, they are appealing the preliminary injunction ruling to the Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. But the case is not over because since this is only a preliminary injunction, there's more to do in the district court. Uh, for example, uh, the court has, on some of the issues, on a few of the issues, the court has decided that um, she needs a factual record. She needs discovery to be done, and she needs an evidentiary hearing to determine the merits of the issue. A good example is airports. The court didn't deny uh, the injunctive relief on its merits, but instead what the court said was, um, I can't tell from the record as it currently exists whether airports are more like courthouses, where you have tons of security. You know, courthouses are basically fortresses, in a sense. Sure. Um, can't even get in the front door without going through a magnetometer, without you know there being three or four sheriff's officers right there, or marshals, federal marshals, depending upon which courthouse you're going to. Um, and there are all kinds of things you can't bring in with you, um, and so and there are you know there's law enforcement all over the courthouse at every you know. Uh, so, you know, that the courthouses are probably the <clears throat> one exa- example of the extreme. And the other extreme is, let's say, libraries. You know, there, there's no security at libraries. Um, so the question, so, so here's, a, just give an example of um, one aspect of the court's ruling. So one of the uh, arguments, one of the arguments that was made in the case is that the reason, or one of the reasons why courthouses and legislative assemblies, which are discussed explicitly in the Bruin decision, 
One of the reasons those are legitimate sensitive places, or maybe even the main reason, depending upon your perspective, um, is that those are places where the government has traditionally taken over the responsibility for security. Mm-hmm. In a courthouse, what's <clears throat> essentially happening is the government says, look, we're going to be responsible for security. We have armed people everywhere. We have armed people at the doors. We're checking literally everybody who walks in the front of the door. So it's not necessary for you to undertake your own security. We've got this, right? And so, and there aren't that many places that are like that. There are actually very few places like that, but courthouses are a really good example of that. As I said, libraries are not like that. Even if it's a public library run by the government, that's not happening at libraries. Sure. And so because that's one of the arguments in the case, the court said, look, I need to know whether airports are more like courthouses or libraries. She didn't say it that way, but that was the that's the concept that, that the opinion reflects. So I need the parties to do some discovery, and I need the parties to make a an evidentiary record so that I can determine are airports more like courthouses or more like libraries. And the presumption is the extent to which the court concludes that they're more like courthouses, the court is probably going to be more inclined to deny relief at airports if the court uh, thinks that airports are more like libraries, the court might be more inclined to grant relief at airports. That's the gist of of uh, the court's analysis on airports. Now, look, this is important for, for folks to understand. Anything can happen between now and the end of the case. The judge could totally change her mind on anything, favorably or unfavorably. Uh, you know, by the, when the, at the end of the case, when the court makes a final ruling on all this stuff, the court could take away the, some of the relief that she gave us. The, she could change her mind and say, you know what, um, uh, I, I, I've changed my mind on Zeus. I think that uh, there is a uh, um, historical tradition uh, of uh, prohibiting arms at zoos. And so my final ruling is that, that, that you, you can't carry at zoos, right? That could happen. I don't think that's likely, because, but, but that can happen. On the other hand, um, favorable to us, the court might say, well, um, uh, I, I originally didn't think, I, I originally didn't give you relief on playgrounds, but based on you know new information or, uh, or or taking another look at this or having had a more opportunity to examine the record or examine the law uh, or examine the facts, I, I, I do think that you're entitled to some injunctive relief uh, at playgrounds. So anything can change. And as I said, there are these several issues that are still just totally up in the air in terms of the judge really hasn't expressed a view one way or the other, even as a preliminary matter, like airports, um, uh, uh Transportation hubs, mm-hmm. fees—you know—fees are another one of those issues where the court has asked for a more developed factual record. Now, um, what, what, what about training? We're still suing for training. Well, we, don't, we don't know what well, no, it is we don't, yet. There, we aren't suing for training yet because there is no training requirement. As yet. soon as it comes out in July, we'll see from there. Right. So, the, so, so training would not be ripe. There's an yes. issue of ripeness. There's, it's, it wouldn't be ripe to sue on training because there's no training requirement yet. We don't know what we're suing over, so you can't so, you can't sue on uh, you can't sue over things that aren't don't exist yet or aren't concrete. Courts cannot resolve theoretical, you know, quote unquote true. disputes. They're not really disputes. Courts can only resolve concrete controversies. 
So the big, um, the big one that's coming up right now, Dan, is this seems to be the most confusing issue, is do we need permission to enter private homes, private property, not open to the public unless you have permission? This is the biggest confusion that's running right now across the spectrum. Yeah, and I, 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 we spent a lot of time going through that ourselves because uh, I will say two things. The, the court's analysis and ruling on private property was more extensive and detailed than it was on the TRO. There was language used that was absent from the ruling on the TRO. And so lots of people, including us, had questions as to what the ruling actually means. Um, and we spent a lot of time on this. And, and this, here's sort of our reading our, our sense of what we think is going on here. Um, and, you know, I encourage everybody to, uh, to, you know, if they have any questions, check with, check with an attorney. Uh, if they have specific questions about particular facts and particular situations, because, you know, they're going to need, they, they may need advice that's particular to their situation. But our, our reading and how we see this and how we understand it, and this is relevant to how we proceed going forward, of course. Um, there is a difference, in our view, between the court's analysis of the law and the court's ruling on the injunction. Okay, So in other words, the relief that the court actually gave is different than the relief the court could have given under the reasoning uh, under the law. Um, and this is important to understand because what it means is we believe that when the court rules on uh, a final ruling, we believe that the court's reasoning would warrant greater and broader relief. But that remains to be seen. I mean, we'll see. You know. um, and this is, what, this is why this is confusing to people. And it was confusing to us at first. And we, you know, kind of, we, we put our heads together on this and figured out what we, how we think this, this goes. There's a there's a, a detailed discussion in the ruling, in the opinion, about <coughs> two concepts. There's a couple so there's a couple different concepts here that, and and a lot of it has to do with the the intricacies of real property law, um, and they spend a lot of time on this. And then there's two concepts called um, invitees and licensees, and and there, and. The, the word invitee is actually strange because it's counterintuitive what it means. And generally, invitee under the law means, uh, well, let me, let me take a step back. A licensee is someone who has explicit permission. And so someone invites you over to their house or someone invites you, someone, you know, he calls you up and says, hey, let's have a meeting at my, at my office. Uh, you're a licensee. You've been given explicit permission to come onto someone's property. But then there's an invitee, and an invitee is generally considered someone who has implied per permission to be on property. And so the idea of businesses that are held open to the public is typically, you know, Burger King, right? Burger King doesn't necessarily have a sign out front, or usually won't have a sign out front that says, we hereby give you permission to enter our property and walk through our front door. But because they're open for business, and because they're open for business and the expectation is they want people to come in and buy hamburgers, there's an implication that you're allowed to walk onto the property and walk in the front door. Nobody has to tell you that you have a right to come in. It's it's clear from the circumstances and the implications. So that makes you, typically that makes you under the law, an invitee. 
And those are different, and, and, and those are different in important ways. Now, the court, the court, the analysis that the court undertakes under uh, property law and under so traditional property law and under the Constitution, the court has here's what the court has to do in in in, in determining what to do about the private property. What they call what the what their what the state is calling the default rule. Okay. Because the state's position is, well, there are always default rules, right? There's always there's always some sort of principle of law that controls, absent uh, an explicit rule that says one way or the other. And so their position is, well, we're just changing the default rule from A to B or X to Y or yes to no. That's complete nonsense, and and the court saw through that very quickly, um, because what the state understands is that most private property owners will not express a view one way or the other. Most people are not putting up signs. And so what they've decided is if we can flip the default rule to if there's no sign, you go to jail, we can successfully basically prohibit carry almost everywhere. Mm -hmm. That's, That's why they came up with this. That's why New York did it. That's why New Jersey did it. I think Maryland may have done it. I, I know Maryland is in litigation right now. They just passed the law the other day, and they're already litigating over Maryland, but they probably did it too. Yeah, somebody came up with this idea, oh, here's how we can screw them, <laughs> right? Well, once you realize that the, that this quote-unquote default rule flip essentially affects a, a ban, uh, a total change to the basic presumption of right to carry... Once you realize, once you see what's actually happening, it's really obvious that it's unconstitutional. And the court, the judge saw this immediately. It was the, she was not fooled by this. You know, it's really obvious. Notwithstanding the fact that the state put in an amicus curiae brief, or had, but they didn't put it in, but they had a there was an amicus curiae brief put in on, on the on the uh, on this real property default rule. Um, so they had the state arguing it, they had the amicus arguing it, and just as a reminder to your listeners who don't who aren't familiar with the term, amicus curiae um, is a Latin term that means friend of the court. And so in, in, in cases that, you know, cases that have very significant public implications <coughs> and public consequences, it's frequently the case that a, someone who is not a party to the case, but has something relevant to say, will ask the court for permission to have their say. And they'll say, well, we're not a party to the case, but we have some important information for the court that we think would be helpful to the court in making a decision. And so we'd like to come in as a friend of the court or as an amicus curiae and file a brief. And usually in these kinds of cases, they're allowed to do it. It's pretty unusual to deny someone the, uh, the ability to be an amicus curiae. So here, there are a number of amicus curiae in this case. And one of the amicus uh, uh, briefs was a brief arguing the real property the background and history of the real property law um, to try to argue that that not only is this simply a another default rule like any other default rule, but they actually tried to argue that that um, what what we were asking for is contrary to the tradition of private property. That the idea, in other words, they were actually arguing that we were we were trying to. Uh, interfere with the right of people to control their own property and it's actually the opposite which is true and we were very happy to see that what the court actually ruled was what this default rule flip actually does is it takes the decision 
away from the property owner. What the state has actually done here is the state is deciding for the property owner that without absent an explicit manifestation of the property owner's choice, the state is saying you go to jail. So it's actually the opposite. The court actually recognizes that the, the reality is the opposite of what the advocates were saying. It's not that the plaintiffs are asking to supplant the property owner's will and the property owner's ability to control their own property. It's the state doing that. The state is deciding for the property owner what happens in the absence of express express consent. And that's not constitutional. So the court has said two very important things in, the, in, in its opinion. Number one, the state does not get to decide for the property owner what the conditions of entry are. The property owner is the only one who gets to decide what the conditions of entry are. That's a very important conclusion. And number two, the right to bear arms attaches anywhere a person has the legal right to be. When you put those two conclusions together, and the court says those things multiple times in the opinion, when you put those two conclusions together, you get the, 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 you get this the result that the default rule should be entirely unconstitutional. That is, it should be wiped out uniformly. As long as you're in a place lawfully, the state has nothing to say about what the rule is. Okay? The, the only thing the state gets to do is decide what the penalty is when you're not lawfully um, uh, on property. right? But the state doesn't get to say when you can, and how you can conduct yourself on someone's private property. Only the property owner gets to conclude that. Okay, So that's, that's the background. Of, that's the analysis, the court's analysis. However, the ruling is comes full, the actual injunction falls short of that. And again, everybody has to recognize this is a preliminary injunction. Okay, the court is giving preliminary relief for the purposes of while we're litigating the case. Here's what we read the court as having done, as an actual in terms of the actual relief that was given. So the court made a distinction between, uh, or, or a, a, a distinction of property held open to the public. What do we think is, what is our understanding of that? We are understanding that to mean as follows. Think about, I guess, think about three kinds of private property, because the court talks about this and gives examples of each of these. And so this is why we're kind of, this is when we're thinking about this, this is why we're drawing these conclusions, because it's critically important to reconcile the analysis from the order. The order is what controls. Okay, um, and so you kind of have to harmonize what does the order mean, what does the analysis in the opinion mean, and how do they relate to each other. The court talks about three different kinds of property. Property held open to the public, commercial property, for example, held open to the public, commercial property not held open to the public, and, you know, residential property. Okay, so what is the difference between, what does it mean to be held, held open to the public? Well, if you think about a retail store, okay? Burger King, whatever. As we said, the the presumption is, and the law, the way the law looks at this is, you can walk right in the front door. Nobody has, to, it doesn't have to be a sign that says, come on in. You don't have to ring the bell. You don't have to knock. 
You don't have to say, may I enter? You walk right in the front door. And that's the law recognizes that you have a right to do that. Now, of course, they can kick you out for valid reasons, right? If they have a reason to kick you out, they can kick you out. But nobody can say you are a trespasser or you're engaging in some sort of unlawful conduct by walking in the front door. You're allowed to do that. Okay. Now let's talk, let's think about a different kind of commercial operation, a factory or a warehouse, right? Amazon warehouse. I've never been to an Amazon warehouse, but I would suspect you can't just walk in the front door. Maybe you can, maybe you can't, but let's assume that at a warehouse or a factory or some office you, it, that's that's not quote unquote held open to the public, you don't get just you can't just walk in the front door. You have to knock. You have to they have to buzz you in. You have to have an appointment. Um, front door's locked. You know, you have to have a card key. That's very different than a restaurant, a movie theater, a doctor's office, you know, where, you know, in a doctor's office or a law office or an accountant's office, you walk in the front door and you go to the receptionist. You know, Hi, I'm here. Uh, can, <coughs> I, can I meet with, I'd like to, uh, I hear you do wills. I'd like to meet, you know, do you have a lawyer available? Oh, sure. Come on to the conference room. Or no, um, we don't have anybody available right now. You know, uh, you have to make an appointment. But but you get to, the front door's not locked. You get to walk in the front door and engage with the people there it's you know that that's that's that is our sort of best way of understanding what this means and so residential property clearly not open to the public but the court refers to the curtilage right the curtilage is the, the walkway the driveway the the front steps the front door and and i think back to oral argument on the TRO. One of the things the judge was very concerned with was the UPS driver. Okay? UPS driver has to walk up your front on your your walkway and knock on the door. Or at least nowadays, you know, like I'm like the Amazon driver, they leave it there, you know. So sometimes they, you know, the package delivery has changed so dramatically in recent years. Now they just now some they often just leave it on your front door. They don't knock anymore depends you know but the point is the understanding and the, the law is that typically you have a right to walk up and knock on someone's door and then they can send you away if they want to and, and certainly you don't have a right to walk inside the front door if they don't let you in but generally you get to walk up in the front door and knock and say hi is bob there or i have a package for you or you know uh, would you like to buy some uh, insurance or whatever and so that the, the illustration of the ups driver because uh, this court was gravely concerned at, at oral argument on the TRO hearing, gravely concerned that the UPS driver has no way of knowing whether they're violating the law because they can't engage the property owner. They can't engage the homeowner until they knock on the door, until they ring the bell. You know, so so the in a sense in the same way that Burger King is quote unquote held open to the public because you have a right to walk right in the door and, and get online and order your Whopper. You all, it's, the the curtilage of a home, private residence, is in a sense open to the public in the same way, because the the the, the law allows people to walk up and ring the bell. Um, so that's kind of, in our view, that's how we understand this. That we're that's how we're making sense of what the ruling is. If you could walk right in without ringing the bell and asking them to unlock the door, that's that's what the court is talking about. If you can't just walk right in, if you have to ask, if you have to knock on the door, ring the bell, swipe a card key, whatever, 
then then it's off limits. That, that is the line that we're kind of understanding. That's, that's how we're thinking about what the court ruled. And again, because it's a preliminary injunction, it's the beginning. It's not the final ruling. This is what the court determined was the relief that the court was going to give For based now. on the analysis in the opinion. And you're going to address it deeper as the case proceeds. Don't forget the North Jersey chapter Friends of the NRA is having a fundraiser October 5th in Biagio's. Go to friendsofthenra.org and events. And the DC Project CNJFO fundraiser is uh, Saturday, July 29th at the, uh, the mansion on Main Street in Voorhees. And I would be remiss if I didn't give a plug for uh, Hartman Winnicky. Hartman Winnicky is Dan Schmutter's firm. And we want to continue supporting those who support you. And it's very, very important. Their, their firm handles. Dan, tell us what your, what your firm handles, please. So our firm is a, uh, a small general, pla- general practice firm. Um, we represent individuals. We represent small businesses, large businesses, gigantic businesses. Um, we do uh, estate planning, wills, estate administration. We do commercial transactions. We do leases. Uh, we do corporate corporate work. We do small businesses, large businesses. And we do litigation. And our, our litigation practice is actually very interesting. You know, I mean, obviously, you know what you know a lot of what I do. Um, you know, of course, the the constitutional work, um, and I do I do <coughs> other firearms related work as well. Um, we do commercial litigation as well. You know, if you have a, a lawsuit with your landlord or your tenant, you may own a property, and you may have a tenant you have litigation with, or you may be a tenant and have litigation with your landlord. Um, we may, we do litigation over contracts. Um, we do state litigation. So we do all kinds of interesting stuff. My partner does very interesting internet and e-commerce law. Um, so both the transactional uh, work and regulatory work for for the internet work and um, and litigation over internet and intellectual property, trademark, copyrights. So we, we have a, a very broad practice for a small firm. Um, you know, we do we do work at a, at a very very high level. Meaning, I really very proud of the quality that we bring to the table because you know, um, for a small firm, we we bring uh, a lot of firepower to the thought process, to the creativity, and to how what the effort and kind of way we do things uh, here at Hartman Winnicke. So I'm very, very proud of, uh, of the kind of work we do. You know, uh, thank you. So anybody asks, I need a lawyer for this. I need a lawyer for that. Support those who support you. So Dan, the next thing, uh, big question is, did Judge, Chief Judge Bum enjoin all contact phone, mail, email with your references or just in-person interviews specifically? Because now your your references don't have to have in-person re, uh, interviews for now as the case proceeds. Am I correct? We 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 read the injunction. We read the injunction as prohibiting the reference interview in its entirety, because if you if you look at the if you look at the opinion, it talk, it talks about how there's 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 no basis for interviewing the references. There's no, there's no nothing in the opinion that that would suggest there's a difference between an in, the type of interview. It's about whether there's a valid basis to interview references or not. And the court concludes pretty plainly there is no basis to do that. Um, so that's how we read the opinion. No, no, no reference interviews. Okay. Now, what constitutes a playground? Or, again, for now, you know. The court, the, the court did not address that. And, and the issue of what's a playground, that wasn't, that's not really not before the court. Um, and we, look, we're disappointed that we didn't get playgrounds because we... Um, 
we offered the court a what we thought was a very clear and bright line way of distinguishing between a playground that might be associated with the school and a playground that's not associated with the school um and um uh this is another reason why people have to just recognize that, that this is just a preliminary injunction mm-hmm. um, this is not a final ruling and you know at, just just as a the record in a tro is less well developed than the record in front of the court for a preliminary injunction. The record for a preliminary injunction is typically less well-developed or often less well-developed than the the record that can be developed for the final judgment. You know, just as there are factual issues on a few of these things that the judge wants to develop and wants to see, um, there's going to be more, there's, there's continuing and ongoing legal analysis on everything, on all this stuff. And we believe and we hope that in the final analysis, we will be able to convince the court that it is appropriate to uh, issue an uh, injunctive relief, permanent injunctive relief, as to playgrounds and um, youth sports events and some of these other ones. Um, We think that ultimately when the final analysis comes down, we will convince the court that we should have complete relief on healthcare facilities as opposed to just partial relief. Um, the, as the court gave us. So, uh, and really, the, the, the you know, I want to I put this out to Please. your listeners. Some of the rulings were, uh, that is, some of the denials of relief for a preliminary injunction were on the issue of standing. And let me explain to your listeners again what standing is, because um, this is actually very important. Standing is the concept that in order for a plaintiff to assert a claim and ask the court for relief, they have to be the right person to bring that claim. And in order to be the right person to bring that claim, you have to have an, an actual injury. You have to be suffering an injury that that warrants you getting relief from the court. And if so, here's a great example how standing uh, changes over time and under circumstances. So zoos are a great example. So I'm, I'm going differ- I'm gonna, I'm gonna to point out the difference between the relief that we got in the TRO and the relief that we got at the preliminary injunction. So we got more relief for the preliminary injunction in some respects because of difference in standing. So at the TRO stage, we did not get relief for zoos. We did not get relief for... Um, filming locations, and we did not get relief for healthcare facilities. We got all of those at the preliminary injunction, uh, even though we got only partial relief for medical. And here's why. The court concluded at the TRO stage that the injury claimed was not likely to arise in that time frame. And so the way the court understood, you know, the way the court applied the standing analysis is it's not sufficient to say I go to zoos or I go to the doctor or I'm going to come across a film location. The court said that you have to show that you're likely to do those things in the short time frame where the TRO applies to, right? A temporary restraining order is a short-term thing and you need emergency relief. And so you have to show not simply that you go to zoos, but you're going to be going to a zoo really soon because if you're not going to a zoo soon then you're not injured now 
you may be injured later, but you're not injured now. So I can't give you relief now. And so we were able to, so the court denied our injunctive request for, on the TRO for zoos. But then between the TRO ruling and the preliminary injunction hearing, we were able to show and put in the record affidavits from the plaintiffs saying, I'm planning to go to such and such zoo on Memorial Day weekend. I'm planning to go to such and such zoo in June. And so now the court, because remember the time frame for which the preliminary injunction matters is all the way to the end of the case. So if you can show that you're going to suffer or likely to suffer an injury during that time frame between now and the end of the case, now you have an injury that the court can address and can provide relief for. So no one, the court ruled that no one was able to show that they were going to a zoo immediately, but we were able to show that we're going to zoos in the next couple of months. And now the court could say, okay, you now have standing to, um, you now have standing because you have an injury that's that's coming up within the relevant time frame. Now mm-hmm. I can give you relief because the court can't give relief if you don't have standing to bring the claim and assert that you have the requisite injury. So the same is true between now and the end of the case. Okay, so the court, for example, on medical, and this is going to be really important, the court said, I'm only giving you relief on the places that the plaintiff said that they're going to visit. And so we put in all sorts of uh, evidence about doctor's offices and chiropractors and dentists. And so the court said, OK, fine, I'm giving you that. But you didn't give me how you didn't show me anybody's going to a hospital. You didn't show me anybody's going to a general hospital, a tuberculosis hospital, you know, all kinds of things. You know, that, that, that list in the healthcare section is huge. Now, we disagree. We actually disagree with the analysis. We actually, the healthcare, the healthcare prohibition is a unitary prohibition. It's not a list of places. It's a prohibition on healthcare facilities, including, but not limited to the following. In other words, those are just examples. It's not a prohibition on 25 things. It's a prohibition on one thing, with 25 examples. So we actually think that the court should have given us the whole category. But again, it's preliminary. We have plenty of time to to persuade the court about our position. But even if we can't persuade the court that it's actually a single prohibition and all we need is standing, all we need is one example of standing to get the whole thing, we have an opportunity between now and the end of the case to, to provide as many examples of po- as possible of people who are going to go to all these different things. So I'm going to ask your listeners right now, and I'll do this at other times as well. Anybody who's a member of ANGRPC or would, is willing to become a member of ANGRPC, if you can hit those categories in that healthcare list, whether it's a general, whether it's a, you can show that you're going to go to a hospital or any of those other things, pharmacies, I mean, everybody goes to a pharmacy, you know, all the different lists. I encourage people to go look at that list. And if you can say in an affidavit that I, I'm going to this and I go to these and I attend these and for whatever reason, I encourage you to email me because we may want to use you to, to show standing on all every single one of those items to the extent that we can we can do that um and my email is d schmutter d s c h m u t t e r at 
hartmanwinicky.com. H-A-R-T-M-A-N-W-I-N-N-I-C-K-I. I'm sorry, W-I-N-N-I-C-K-I dot com. Um, you know, I mean, you know, it, it, we have an opportunity to keep keep advancing the ball, and we intend to do so. And so, you know, if you Great if you job. if you've if you've got it, if you got the facts, let me know, and maybe we can, you know, maybe we can use you. So, Dan, would that call um, be more appropriate if it were a physician or a nurse or a uh... really anyone so yeah so that, that's a i'm glad you asked that sandy because that's actually a great question it could be anyone you know obviously we'll have to determine based on the particular person's facts whether we can use them or not but it could be doctors nurses techs technicians whatever it could be patients it could be anyone anyone that can all you need to have to be able to say for us to sort of possibly use that person is I, I am, I go to those locations on these occasions for these reasons so that you have injury. That is, I go to these places, I'm going to these places. I have an appointment to go to these places, any sort of, any of those versions. Um, and I won't be able to carry, I would carry, but I won't be able to because of the law. Um, and there's a possibility we could make use of that to demonstrate standing. Um, and because ANGRPC is a plaintiff, ANGRPC gets to assert the claims of its members. So members of ANGRPC get to say those things. And if a member of ANGRPC can say that, then ANGRPC can say that. And we did that a few times already. You know. Um, you hear that? With- if not now, when? Right. If not us, right. Who? It is time to stand up. Dan needs your help. And then there's other examples. There's, uh, you know, we, we, we didn't get relief on wildlife refuges because we didn't have anybody specifically saying, I go to wildlife refuges and I want to be able to defend myself if I'm at a wildlife refuge. If I get attacked by a criminal uh, at a wildlife, while I'm at a wildlife refuge, I won't be able to defend myself because I'm not allowed to carry a wildlife refuge, you know. <laughs> Yeah, that, that too. But I mean, you know, the point is, that's an example of where the court denied relief on standing. You know, we didn't have someone say, I go to wildlife refuges, and therefore she couldn't, she, her, in her view, she could not give us relief on wildlife refuges. So that's another example. If you go to wildlife re, wildlife refuges, let us know. And look, I, I can, I, what I'll probably do is between now and, 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 you know, down the road, I will probably sort of put out a call for each and every circumstance where we need this, but I'm, those are the biggies. I'm, I'm just pointing that out now since we're on the show and you know people are listening. Um, I want to put that out so people can think about it uh, because I want to, we, we ought to be able to hit as many of us as we possibly can. You know, we have lot. The NGRPC has lots and lots and lots and lots of members, and there's lots of people who do all kinds of things um, for which they're they're injured by this law, and so you know we ought to be able to show a, a lot more um, instances of standing. That uh, that the judge, um, you know, uh, needs to see so before important. she's willing to give us relief. So you know, important. it's funny. We were talking before the show about uh, historically, so many people in New Jersey who, um, for for whatever reason, I, I mean, uh, it, it's it's understandable because for many many years the attitude was, well, what the hell can I do? I I can't do anything. The, the state just runs roughshod over the top of us. They, they hate us. We know they hate us. There's nothing I can really do about it. So why should I stand up? Why should I risk anything? And I think right now we're at a juncture where this is the only relief. 
and everyone really needs to understand this if we allow them we've we've kind of thanks to to people like dan we've got these we've got the state regulators against the ropes and if we sit back and let them win because they expect us to do nothing and because we have proven to do nothing we have a historical we have a historical demonstration of doing nothing and if we change that if you think what you do does not make a difference it does make a difference individuals brought this lawsuit individuals brought bruin individuals are the ones who stepped up and said i am being injured by this and it's now time to really do something about it 100 percent Hundreds yeah, and when you, you know, so much of the so much of the really heavy lifting has already been done. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty more to do, but but the the record, uh, you know, it's funny because you know, people, so many people were asking, oh, how come we haven't had a decision yet? You know, from the court. It's like, well, 200, <laughs> 230 pages. That's why. You know, um, and all the research the court did. Um, you know, that's why. But so much of the law. And the legal analysis has been done already that we essentially have a roadmap of how to get more relief. And that's why that's why I'm putting out this call for members, because we can see how to get more medical. We can see how to get wild, wildlife refuges, refuges. I keep saying that incorrectly. I don't know why. It happens. Um, it happens. Um, the law is there. The, 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 the court's understanding of the law is on paper we just got to plug into that right uh in many respects i mean some of the stuff we have some some work to do in terms of convincing the court or uh, on, on other aspects of the law that we disagree with but so much of the law is <coughs> laid out already so much of the court's thinking on this is already laid out we just got to plug into it you know um we're, you know the column is advancing just get on board that that's that's there's so many aspects mm. of this where all that's all we have to do. Again, I, I don't want to simplify it because there's plenty of more work to do on the case overall. But there are some pieces of this where people can get on board pretty readily, and we think we have a decent shot at advancing some of this just by plugging in. Dan, I I, I know your, your passion. There's still police departments telling. Uh, people when they pick up their carry permit, that their gun has to be inoperable in the back of the vehicle. They still can't carry it in a vehicle. This just happened in Monmouth County. Just an alert, people can carry concealed on their person. They can carry their gun, correct? Yeah, the court enjoined the prohibition on vehicle carry. I mean, you know, it's and this is this is something I want to uh, put out there because a lot of questions on well can I have a can I have a holster attached to my you know dashboard or can I here's the way to think about it okay and this is sort of a good nuts and boltsy way of thinking about it this is how I think about it there are two ways of two two things you can do in a vehicle you can be carrying or you can be not carrying okay. If you're carrying, all the carry rules apply, whether you're in a vehicle or not. You got to follow the carry rules. If you're not carrying, you got to follow the not carrying rules, and we all know what those are, because there's a whole body of law about how to transport handguns without a carry permit. Those have been we've have years and years of experience with that. So the question is, are you carrying a handgun or are you not carrying a handgun? And sometimes you're doing both. 
right? Because remember, there's a two there's a two gun limit under the carry law. So you can't carry five guns, which means if you're in your vehicle and you've got five guns, you can't be carrying more than two of them. Which means the other three are not being carried. Which means think you gotta you gotta comply with the rules for not carrying for those three. So I, I'm gonna just throw that out there for people to think about conceptualize. Dan, as to it, any it, handgun, is it being any. carried or is it being not carried? And whichever you gotta follow the rules for carrying. Or not caring. I just want to throw that out there for some clarity because I think there's some confusion out there about how does that work. And if you think about it, if you parse it that way, you make it binary, it's actually not that complicated. Sure. Dan, the state has filed notice of intent to file an interlocutory appeal. What does this mean and how does it impact our ongoing litigation? And how does the uh, how does it how does it how does it work right now? Like so people okay, can so, understand what what's going on and what else do you need us to do? Let me correct the terminology. They filed a notice of appeal. Okay. Notice of appeal. A notice okay. of appeal commences the appeal. Um, there, you know, the, the 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 notice of the filing of the notice of appeal is the beginning of the appeal process. Okay. Um, and um, there are a variety of things that might happen. So the state uh, has suggested that they're going to be filing. Uh, they're going to be requesting a stay pending appeal. And what that is is a request. Uh, that the ruling be set aside while the appeal is taking place. So these are all related concepts, right? So just as we've requested and obtained a preliminary injunction, that is injunctive relief while the case is going on until the end, a stay pending appeal is sort of the opposite of that in a sense. It's Although it's essentially the same and actually the standard the standards are, are are quite similar, actually. They're saying, while the appeal is pending, we want you to stop the ruling. So just as we asked the trial court, while the case is pending, we want you to stop the law, a stay pending appeal is, while the appeal is pending, we want you to stop the ruling. Same, very similar concepts, actually, and, and that's why the standards are basically sort of on all fours with each other. Um, and so the the uh, court will have to, and, and there's sort of a two-step process. You have to ask the trial court first. The trial court gets the first shot at whether to issue a stay pending appeal. And if the trial court denies that, then you go to the appellate court. And you ask the appellate court for a stay pending appeal. And the appellate court can, again, going through the same criteria, irreparable harm, likelihood of success in the merits, the other couple, you know, the other couple of, of factors as well, the appellate court can either grant the stay pending appeal or deny the stay pending appeal. So during the appeal, either the ruling will remain in effect or the ruling will be set aside. Now, this is very important. And I'm going to ask your listeners to pay close attention to what goes on in the next few days or weeks, because if if there is a stay pending appeal granted, what that will most likely mean is that the law goes back into effect in its entirety during the appeal. People have to know that. Because if a stay pending appeal is granted and the law, and the ruling is nullified for the time during the appeal, all of the restrictions go back into effect. Gotcha. That's critically important for people to be aware of. They have to pay attention, okay? And that could happen very fast. So the people must follow what's happening 
um, uh, in the appeal process, especially in the short term. Dan, can you give us uh, an update on the mag band and the pistol uh, uh, and the evil features case? I know the pistol brace we're waiting on. Uh, hopefully a lawsuit comes through and we get a temporary restraining order on that because that's up on the end of the month. Uh, sure. But what's going on with the mag band case and the AR cases? Because people are still obviously thinking about that as well. So, as you know, just wanted to throw that in there. Um there are three cases that have been consolidated for the purposes of discovery. One is the Magban case that goes back to uh, 2018. Uh, that was uh, went up to the Supreme Court and then was uh, remanded back after Bruin. Then there is uh, ANGRPC's uh, assault firearm case, so-called quote-unquote assault firearm case um, that, that I'm handling. That's Elman versus Platkin. And then there is another assault firearm case that's uh, a, uh, an FPC-sponsored case, Firearms Policy Coalition, and that is Cheeseman versus Platkin. So all three of these, that's not my case, all three of these cases are being heard together for the purposes of discovery. Now, discovery, to remind your listeners, is the process by which the parties exchange information. It might be factual information, it might be documents. Um, there might be depositions where people are questioned under oath to find out what they know. Um, there's also expert discovery where if you have <coughs> witnesses, you exchange reports from those experts so you know what their opinion is going to be at trial. And then maybe you get to depose those experts to ask them questions. And so it's all the process of developing facts and developing the record and so that because we don't litigate like you don't litigate by surprise. Litigation is all about disclosure. Everybody, by the time you get to trial, or by the time you get to what's called dispositive motions, and I'll talk about that in a minute because it's relevant to the Magban case, um, everybody pretty much knows what everybody's going to say. You, we don't. There's no. There's no litigation by by surprise here. By the time you get to the end of the case, everybody knows what the other side's going to say, so that you know how to frame your arguments and frame your your position to trial. So that's what's going on now in the Magban slash assault firearm cases. The schedule has been set, and um, the schedule is such that the parties are to wrap up all the discovery and file what are known as dispositive motions by September to be heard by the court and argued in October. And what dispositive motions are, are motions to the court that have the potential to resolve the case in its entirety. entirety. Now, and let me sort of explain what that means, because typically people think of trials as being the last part of the case. A trial is about resolving disputed issues of fact. Did he go through the red light? Did he not go through the red light? Was the light red? Was the light green? Is he the guy who pulled the trigger, or did somebody else pull the trigger? These are disputed issues of fact. Yes, I did. No, I didn't. Yes, it's true. No, it's false. That's what trials are for. And so the trier of fact, as we call them, whether it's a jury or a judge, because you can have a judge deciding facts. Uh, you, not every case has a jury. That's what a trial is for. You put on witnesses, somebody testifies, and somebody has to decide. Is he telling the truth or is he lying? Did he see what he said he saw or maybe his eyesight was no good? We've all seen My Cousin Vinny, right? The idea behind the trial in My Cousin Vinny was, did they actually see the two defendants come out of the sack of suds, right? Well, turns out there was a dispute 
there were witnesses who said, I saw those guys come out of the sack of suds. Turns out that they weren't the ones that come out of the sack of suds. So that's a trial. But if you don't have disputed issues of fact, if you're not arguing over what actually happened, then what you have is just pure issues of law. What does the law say? And so if you just have pure issues of law, if you're not arguing over facts, you don't need a trial. You can submit briefs and argument Mm -hmm. to the court. And that's what dispositive motions are. Dispositive motions are, can this case be entirely resolved on papers and argument? Or do we need witnesses to testify? And if you don't need witnesses to testify, if it's just about arguments on paper and arguments in court, like a preliminary injunction, or like our preliminary injunction or our TRO, then you might be able to resolve the case by motion. And so these these are dispositive motions. The most common type of dispositive motion is called a summary judgment motion. And so that's what the court has directed us to do, to file dispositive motions in December, to be argued and heard in October. And it might be the case that the case gets resolved entirely with those motions without the need for a trial. Wow. I hope you're right. Uh, Dan, that was a great show. I can't thank you enough for your efforts in educating us. You know it's going to generate a slew of additional questions. So, again, uh, maybe next week we'll have you back on the show. We'll see what kind of response we get. Support those who support you. Dan uh, does a lot of this work for us. So support ANGRPC, support the NRA. Of course, we want to support all the other two-way organizations, too. We want to be a suspenders in belt. And when you can, Hartman Winicky in Ridgewood, New Jersey. Please go on their site and uh, refer friends and family. Uh, Dan's got to pay the bills. He has a day job as well as a night and part-time and weekend job. Dan, would you like to close it out with anything, please? Well, I'm hungry. I'm just going to go have a pork roll sandwich. I mean, Taylor Ham, sorry. (laughs) I'm having having pommes frites in Belgium today, bitches, and I'm going to have a big-ass Belgium waffle. Thank you all for all your support. Listen, like and share this show everywhere, please, so that people get the word out. We could stop the misinformation. Dan, I can't thank you enough. Sandy, sweet home Alabama. Dan, thank you so much for everything that you do. Well, it looks like you've done it again. You've wasted yet another perfectly good hour listening to Gunfire Radio. Gunfire Radio is a kind of thick media production. The music is in this broadcast was managed by Cosmo Music, New York, New York. On behalf of our show host, Master Trainer Anthony Calandro, author of Crime Proof, Think Like a Criminal and Beat Them Out at Their Own Game, which he did not mention this week, but is still available at all great bookstores and at the gun shop, bookshop, gun range known as Gun for Hire, where... From time to time, he stops in from the world traveling and maybe signs a book or two, then leaves again. Well, we love you guys from the beautiful Gulf Shores of Alabama, somewhere in Belgium, eating waffles, and the darkness, soon to be lightness, of the New Jersey um, landscape. Let's put it that way. We love you guys. God willing, Jesus carries, and the batteries hold out. We will see you again next week.